Before the homily, we'll talk about the Safe Haven Sunday initiative that is beginning today all across the Diocese of Lansing and will be something we touch upon annually as a result to combat one of the great challenges of our time that goes often unspoken about, especially in church, and that is the dangers of pornography. In the newest edition of Faith Magazine that will soon be coming into your homes if you have not received it already, uh, the Director of Marriage and Family Life for the Diocese shares some alarming statistics about this epidemic that is plaguing the family in America. It says this, one in three Americans uses pornography at least once a month, including 67% of teen and young adult males and 33% of teen and young adult females. Of those females who have watched pornography, 51% of them have ended up sharing a nude photo of themselves online. It says that the average age of first contact with pornography for boys is only 12 years old. 90% of boys and 60% of girls are exposed to online pornography before the age of 18, and 71% of teens admit that they've done something to cover their tracks online from their parents. This has become a $100 billion a year industry in America, so that means it's not going away. It's pervasive, and it is destructive. Back in the day, people had to risk their reputation and their livelihood to go into the seedy parts of town to find this kind of stuff or to get off at the wrong exit on the expressway and go into those little shops. But now the devil's greatest trick is he sends it right into our homes and oftentimes for free. If we knew that someone was trying to break into our house, we would close and lock all the doors and windows. We would set the alarm. And yet this is coming into iPads, into phones, into computers, into televisions, and our magazines, our streaming services, you name it. And it's just flowing freely. And it is destroying soul after soul, robbing us of our purity and taking what was once beautiful, the image and likeness of God, the gift of sex, and turning it into something that is very base and debased and debauchery. And this Safe Haven Initiative is an opportunity for us to assist parents and their families to regain control of this situation, a situation that is now completely burning out of control. And that is why today we're making available you, to you these little books. Look at how little that is. This is the only kind of books I will actually read. And uh, this is called Equipped, Smart Catholic Parenting in a Sexualized Culture. And it's from Covenant Eyes, which is an international ministry, but it actually started right in the Diocese of Lansing and still has its headquarters in Owasso northeast of Lansing. And so we're inviting every household to make sure you have one of these books and take it home with you today. Uh, there's very easy steps that you can follow to begin to secure your home against this pervasive darkness that is taking root in too many of our hearts and too many of our homes. And then it's meant to get us online with Covenant Eyes to make sure we have all the safeguards and the measures in place. So I'll mention it again at the end of Mass. Those books are in the Carlton Lobby and over here by the elevator. So we're gonna, we're gonna wage this battle for the good of souls starting right in our own homes. End of commercial, now let's talk about some vineyards. Isaiah speaks about a vineyard, the best vineyard that anybody had ever seen. It was a great patch of land. Uh, the landowner did everything he needed to do in order to make it a success. The best soil, the best seed, a wine press, a watchtower, a hedge around it, uh, skilled farming, and yet, at the harvest time, all that that field continually brought forth year after year was wild grapes. What we, we, we might call it the grapes of wrath. What was Isaiah talking about? He was speaking about God's chosen people in relationship to God himself. 
he had given them every advantage. He had made all the people in the world, but he chose only them with whom to make his covenant. And that was all they should have ever needed or wanted, was to have the one God fighting for them. And yet Israel throughout the centuries believed themselves to be small and defenseless. Together, Israel and Judah were only about the size of the American state of New Jersey. And being so small and defenseless, they said, how can we, such a small country, how can we survive if we have only one God to watch over us? And that's why they were so taken with the gods of their neighbors, even the gods of their enemies, because they had a God of day, a God of darkness, a God of war, a God of peace, a God of agriculture, a God of fertility, you name it. Someone was worshiping some sort of deity that was supposedly responsible for that one thing. And thus it was that lather, rinse, and repeat over the centuries, God's chosen people continued to go to the temple, offer prayers, incense, and sacrifice, and then they would go to lesser temples dedicated to lesser gods that didn't even exist, trying to cover all the bases. Well, Isaiah's letting the people know that God had given them everything. He gave them the vineyard, he gave them the seed, the soil, and yet if all they're going to do is continue to yield a harvest of wild grapes, the grapes of wrath, then he is going to destroy the vineyard and he's going to let other people take control of it. This was Isaiah's forecast of a great war that was coming from the north, the armies of Assyria from the capital at Nineveh. And sure enough, all of their land was going to be taken from them, their lives, their livelihoods. The men were going to be deported to work as slaves in exile. All that Isaiah, speaking for God, was asking for was come back to me. Come back to covenant faithfulness. Repent of your sins. Stop worshiping false gods. Don't let there be idols that stand between you and me. Well, one of the reasons why the Old Testament is so much longer than the New is because Israel would not heed, they would not repent, they would not listen, they would not change, and they rejected most of the prophets that came to try to stop them. That sets the stage for Jesus' discussion of the vineyard in Matthew chapter 21. Remember, starting last week and for the next eight Sundays, all of our Gospels at the Sunday Mass will be in the last days of Jesus' life. At the beginning of chapter 21, he goes up to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And then between his entrance into the city and his going into the upper room on Holy Thursday for the Last Supper, he spends Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of Holy Week in the temple at Jerusalem. For those who believed in him, he was preaching to them, teaching, healing. But for his critics, who were many, he was just embroiled in a continuous debate. And now he is speaking to the chief priests and the scribes, and he tells them about the vineyard, that once again, uh, it had every advantage. And the landowner has come to collect the profits at the harvest time, but they will not pay. And they begin to beat the servants who come to collect, and they even start to kill them. The landowner decides, I will send my son. Surely they will respect him, and him, of course, they kill, because they somehow misguidingly think his inheritance will become their own. What was Jesus referring to? Well, there's the agricultural context, the economic context at that time, and that was the fact that in such a little country, there was very little wealth, very few wealthy people, and even fewer people could own land, but the ones who owned land owned lots of it. But their patches of earth were not all interconnected. They owned some up here, they owned some down here, and some over there. They can't live on all of it. So the landowner would lease out the parcels he did not live on to sharecroppers, who then were forced to farm that land and give him the bulk of the produce, the bulk of the harvest of the profit that would come forth from it. And so that meant these people who were already never free because they were in an occupied province of the Roman Empire, they weren't even free to farm their own land because there was no land to be had. 
that sets the stage then. Because every year at the harvest time, the landowner is going to send out his servants to collect the produce and the harvest in these various plots of earth he owns. And yet, in this case, they've never met the landowner, and they don't care about his needs. They're looking out for themselves. And that's why they decide we're not going to pay up. We are not going to give them what is rightfully theirs. And that is why they start to beat those who come to collect, and they even kill his son. Now, remember where Jesus is and when it is in the timeline of Jesus' life. And now this makes perfect sense. He has only hours to live. And he's speaking to two of the nine groups that are conspiring actively against him for his death. And he's letting them know what has been going on for centuries is about to come to fruition. For a thousand years before the coming of the Christ, God was sending prophets, patriarchs, and judges to his chosen people to do what Isaiah was trying to do, to get them to repent, to bring them back to covenant faithfulness, to prepare them for the coming of God's Son. But Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, so many of the prophets of the Old Testament were persecuted. Some of them were even put to death because the stiff-necked and hardened heart chosen people of God refused to listen and would not repent. And when you don't like the message, you try to shoot the messenger. It was all a sign. It was all a sign of how the Christ was going to be treated when he finally came. As they rejected those who prepared for his coming, certainly they would reject him as well. And now Jesus has announced God's decision, the verdict, the penalty. And he said this, the vineyard will be taken away from you and given to those who will produce its fruit. That was Jesus once again reminding the elite of Judaism, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the elders, the scholars of the law, those who had memorized all of God's word, those who obeyed all of God's laws, those who'd be very quick to accuse anyone else who broke one of those laws or didn't live according to God's word. Jesus is telling them that if they reject him, they're rejecting God. They're rejecting their chance at heaven. And instead, it will be given to the Gentiles who were so quick to believe that he was God's son because he offered them salvation too. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the scholars of the law, they will refuse to believe. They will remain hardened of heart and stiff-necked, and they'll put Jesus on that cross. But that's all part of God's plan, to drive out the darkness and to help his people who were once enslaved to sin to be free, not only in heaven, but especially now, here on earth, if we can break the chains. And so, my friends, Jesus, he faces off with his greatest critics, and he is prepared to take on our greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and death, that we might be free here, that we might be free forever. And so he hopes that we will uh, use all the gifts that he has given us, all the advantages he has entrusted to us to bear fruit and a bountiful harvest for his kingdom.